phrase that came up, oh, before I start, I also, I want to acknowledge that today is the 80th anniversary of the signing of Executive Order 9066 by President Franklin Roosevelt, which incarcerated 120,000 people of uh, Japanese descent, many of whom, most of whom I think were American citizens. And um, it's just another one of those ugly chapters in our history, and um, the forces that allowed that to happen are still alive and well in our, in our world today, in our country today, and to acknowledge that and to understand and know our history is really, really important. So I just wanted to lift that up because it's, uh, it's really big and important. So thank you. Um, so I was saying that um, this, I want to talk about uh, this phrase that popped into my head the other day, a wise heart. And I, I think I first heard it uh, because it's um, a, a title of a book by Jack Hornfield. He wrote it, I think it's like 14 or 15 years old. And I read it back when it came out. And I like the idea, I use the phrase because I, I, uh, I like the idea of a heart that is wise and wisdom that has a heart so that there's this balance as you know there's often we often talk about the two wings of awakening being wisdom and compassion you don't want to just have the cold or the dry wise logical you know mr spock brain without emotion um you want to also have a, a, a wisdom that's infused with compassion that's infused with kindness, that's connected to others. It's so important. And um, in the book, A Wise Heart, Jack Kornfield talks about Buddhist psychology. What is the, the subtitle is A Guide to the Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology. And when he talks about the universal teachings, he talks about, um, he draws from a lot of different lineages. And I practiced primarily in the lineage of the elders, Theravada, um, early Buddhism. That's where my uh, uh, affinity lies. That's what really uh, speaks to me. But I also um, am touched by some teachings from other lineages. If, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Buddhism, but there's uh, the Theravada, the early, early Buddhist teachings, and then there's Mahayana, which... Um, our later texts, um, when Buddhism migrated around and moved to um, East Asia and to China and then to Japan and Korea and, and moved into Southeast Asia and to Thailand, Vietnam, um, Sri Lanka, there are uh, Burma, there are a lot of uh, adept, oh, Tibet, excuse me, hello, a lot of adaptations and, and um, additions and permutations but when Jack talks about this he talks about the universal pieces of it they're different they're, as I said they're different suttas I, I'm very inspired by the idea of the Bodhisattva which is a which is a Mahayana tradition the the being who um, works for the benefit of all works to end suffering for all beings 
Um, I've been very inspired by the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, who was a Vietnamese Zen who, uh, teacher who passed away just a few weeks ago. Um, and so there are those different pieces, but um, there's, a, there's some wisdom that can be drawn from all of them, and Jack touches on those that are kind of universal. And I also want to say, it's, I think it's important to recognize that um, there's a critique of this type of thing, of drawing from all these different pieces, and I think that the critique is valid if you kind of skim the surface of a lot of them without going deep into the, diff the different practices um, because that's what we have a tendency to do, human beings. It's like, oh, I like this, and I like that, and I like that, and we, we skim the surface searching for the quick fix, and it's like, oh, this is getting a little too difficult. I'm going to go over there because that looks nice and shiny, and it's nice and shiny until you actually start getting in and doing the work, and then it's challenging, and it's like, oh, I'm going over there. So the invitation is to... Find, if you're, if you're interested in the Buddhist teachings, find those that resonate with you. Like as I say, the lineage of the elders, the early Buddhism, really resonates with me. And so that's where I really go deep into practice, but also aware and acknowledging and honoring the other traditions, which are incredibly important. Um, it's, it's helpful to understand them and see where they, they actually do have a... a a similarity um, and a lot of kernels of what blossoms later are found in Theravada um, Buddhism. Uh, Jack says he um, he says Buddhism offers a holistic approach um, that invites us to make practice part of our entire life. It's so easy to. Um, draw a distinction between spiritual life and secular life. And in fact, I gave a talk about this type of thing a few months ago about um, uh, sacred, you know, allowing the sacred to be part of your everyday existence. The sacred is not over there. It's not in a temple. It's not in a church. It's, it's around us. And to infuse our lives with the sacred, and in the same way, um, there's not a spiritual part and a secular part. There, it's all unified, and to be aware of that. And um, Cornfield talks about his teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great uh, Thai teachers of the last century, who says, he said he never made a distinction between the pain of divorce and the pain in your knee and the pain of clinging to self. They are all forms of suffering, and Buddhism addresses them all. Um, and the core teaching of Buddhism across the board is that the Buddhist understanding of mind is that the mind can be trained and awakened to the nature of reality, to move into this path of, of away from suffering, uh, freedom from suffering, and it's through this training and this practice that we discover our true nature and find liberation. In fact, um, there's a quote from one of the suttas that says, Luminous is the mind, brightly shining is its nature, but it's colored by the attachments that visit it. And that's, that's, a, that's from um, the Pali Canon, which is early Buddhism, but that's a kernel of Buddha nature which is a very much a Mahayana 
idea that we have this 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 Buddha nature that we're inherently enlightened, but we have all this crap that we're dragging along with us. This this attachment, this wanting this and wanting this. It's it's our conditioning, our deep deep conditioning, our our familial conditioning, societal conditioning. All these things that we're. Uh, I I saw a commercial today. It was some woman. She was like I was. She showed a picture of a. Um, a magazine, and she said, I was a cover girl in 1998, and I'm still a cover girl because I use this anti-aging cream on my face. And I was like, that is, it's like 20 seconds, it's really innocuous, but it's really a bullshit message, <laughs> in my opinion. We are conditioned, we are conditioned like, oh, can't get old, can't get old, got to buy that stuff. And we drag that conditioning around with us. That's societal conditioning that we're, unless we're paying attention, we, we um, ingest it. And we, we view our world through these, this lens. And to recognize that and say, oh, my God, I got wrinkles. I got to get that cream. And we suffer. We suffer because of nonsense that's that's conditioned us so so these teachings allow us to recognize that we are luminous and bright without this attachment to thinking we should look a certain way or we should have certain things um and that's the beauty of buddhist teaching is like learning how to let go of those attachments the mind can be trained and waken to the nature of reality that it's not necessary to have this stuff and so what we do is there's the cultivation of wisdom it's so important, and um, in in oftentimes in Buddhists in meditation instructions, we invite people to just let the thoughts go by, let the thoughts go by, which is really important to begin to separate ourselves from the attachment to the thought, and to recognize that we don't always have to go along for the ride. But it's also really important to recognize the contents, not become entangled in them, but to recognize what might be present. And Jack talks about this. He said, there's a freedom in just being aware of the thoughts. But if someone says, if you're, I'm thinking all the time, I'm thinking all the time, the question might be, well, what are you thinking of? Thinking of a loss that was present. And so instead of what the invitation then is, is to maybe see what's underneath. How are you dealing with grief? If there's a loss of a loved one, how's that grief showing up? Or if there's anger, if you're, if you're looking at the world and just full of rage, not getting caught up in the story, but how do you handle the rage? Or if like, I, you know, I just got a raise at work or I got a bonus and I can buy that, you know, watching, you know, if that thought keeps coming up, blah, 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 whatever it is. You might ask yourself, well, how am I working with planning or attachment? You know, sometimes it's really helpful to know the content, to cultivate this uh, clarity, to begin to see how um, the thoughts impact you or how your experiences impact your thoughts and to, to disentangle and instead tend to what's underneath. We see the content of the thoughts not so we can rework them or fix them, but to begin to see the patterns that are there. You know, begin to see how we're triggered by certain things, certain events, certain, certain language, certain thoughts. 
So that is really important to have this awareness, cultivating this awareness of not just, you know, stepping back from the thoughts, but being aware of what's going on. And Ajahn Chah, again, taught the value of sati, which is um, often translated as mindfulness. That's the main translation is mindfulness, sati. It also means to be with, which is one of my favorite translations. It's like be with, being mindful, being with what's happening, being with the reality of this moment. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but right here. The discomfort of right here, the joy of right here, be with. But... Um, Ajahn Chah likes to, to emphasize a third uh, translation of sati, which is recollection, to remember. You know, whether we're standing or sitting or walking or lying down, pay attention. When we have sati, we see ourselves. We see our own minds. We remember who we are. We remember there's the body. We remember there's a mind within a mind. If we don't have sati, we don't have anything. We're not aware of what's happening. So we remember to be present. We remember to come back. Um, I love Ajahn Chah. He's so straight. They, such a straight shooter. They, um, he didn't write, but they collected a lot of his teachings. In fact, one of, uh, one of his collections of writings is called... I love it. Oh, Food for the Heart. There it is. It's called. It's right up there. It's called Food for the Heart, and it's a lovely thick book. And if you read it, the you, when I finished reading it, the the one thing that I got out of it was let go. That's pretty much it. It's like let go. Remember, let go. Don't become attached. Because as soon as you become attached, as soon as you become pulled away by a thought, you're no longer present. And when you're no longer present, what did he say? He says, if you're lacking in sati, you are crazy which I, that's what I mean. I love he's such a straight shooter. You're crazy. Sati is essential. Mindfulness, recollection, being with is essential. To have sati is to know yourself, to know the condition of your mind and your life. This is to have understanding and discernment and to listen to the Dhamma at all times. That's what sati is, to see with clarity. Oh, see that, that silly message that they told me that, in order to be a cover girl 20 years later, I have to, you know, use this cream on my face or color my hair or wear the right clothes or drive the right car or have the right job or whatever it is. And to recognize that's not true because that begins to have an attachment to a fixed view. Oh, there's a view that is now created. And we get blown away and we get knocked over and we're no longer present. It's so easy. So this, this constant recollection, oh, remember, be here now, be here now, be here now. And another part of that, when we do get to that place of being present, of being with, there's what Ajahn Buddhadasa, who is another very prominent monk in Thailand in the last century, he talks, he talks about everyday nirvana, which I really, really, really like. Because there's the, there's the big picture nirvana where we have totally lost any clinging, any preference, and the life of the, the um, cycle of birth and death is ended because there's no more attachment. There's nothing that's keeping us here. There's also this everyday nirvana, which happens when we let go, when we live in the reality of the present. We can be 
just here. It, he says that nirvana manifests as ease, as love, as generosity, as connectedness, as clarity, as an unshakable freedom. It's not watering down nirvana. It's, it's the reality of liberation that we can experience, sometimes even just for a moment, or sometimes in transformative ways that can change your whole life. But I'm sure, I bet, many of you or all of you have had those moments, even just a few moments of just being present. And there's when you all of a sudden you notice and there's no attachment, there's no future, there's no past, you're just fully right here and there's this sense of ease that's present. That's what they're talking about in the, in the seven factors of awakening. There's mindfulness, sati is a requisite. And then there's the investigation, which is what they're talking about here. What's in the content of the mind? And the effort to stay with it, to, to be present, to let go of clinging. And then when you can do that and let go, there's this ease, there's this joy, there's this collectedness of mind, and then there's this equanimity that we're not blown over. The, and... and um, you know, the Buddha realized this, and I think this is what he was talking about when he was remembering when he was a child, I think he was like 10, 11, watching his father and just sitting under a tree and just in this state of present time awareness. And remember, he remembered the ease of that. Didn't have to go here, didn't have to go there, didn't have a mind chirping at him saying, you should have done this, you shouldn't have done that, ugh, what are they thinking, what are they saying about you, blah, blah, all those thoughts that just play constantly, that are just this background noise that we don't even question, it's there. And so the, that's taking us away from here. So when that's all gone, there's a moment of ease. I know some of you have pets. I know my experience just being present with my pets, my cats, there's some ease that can be there. Some of you have children. There's that sense of being with kids who are so in the moment, you know. Um, it's important to recognize that. It's important to recognize what it feels like when there's no attachment. So there's a differentiation between attachment and non-attachment. So you can, oh, this is what feels like when I'm clinging that. Oh, there's that tightness in the chest or the belly or the jaw, whatever. It manifests manifests differently for each of us. So we, the invitation is to find that, recognize it. Sometimes it's just standing. You see a sunrise. You see something pretty or you're just sitting on the sofa just being, just fully in the moment. So recognize that ease. That's a taste of nirvana. That's liberation. Resting in awareness, re the reality of the liberated heart and mind. That's what, that's um, Buddha Dasa. And he said, There's, that's, that's it. It's this, this reality of the liberated heart and the liberated mind. They're just free. So f try and find some nirvana in your life today, finding those moments of freedom. And that moves into this, this other idea that kind of points back to the, uh, the quote from the sutta about luminous is the mind. Ajahn Chah talks about the mind. There's nothing wrong with it. It's intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. And that the mind that's peaceful 
um, doesn't have to do anything. It's just an aspect of nature. And then he says, in his lovely way, he says, you know, we train our minds to be present. We train our minds to let go. And he says, the untrained mind is stupid. It's just stupid. Because you're caught up. You know, we get tricked into getting caught up in things. And so recognizing that this ease is already here. That's what, as I said, the Mahayana point to is Buddha nature. There's this calmness that's available to each of us, but we have to practice. He says the practice is simply to see the original mind. Know, what's, know when you're caught up, know when you're not caught up. The mind is just at ease, so allow yourself to be with that. It's really okay. And we live in a culture that's, you know, all about productivity and fixing and changing and going and doing and accomplishing and so many to-do lists, blah, blah, blah. That's I follow. I follow someone on Instagram, the Nat Ministry, and she's always talking about, you know, getting out of the grind. You know, the grind, this, this colonial mindset of doing and going and more and it's never enough and it's like, and it's an act of rebellion to just be. And that's where ease is, that's where peace is, that's where nirvana is. Not attached to these, these crazy ideas. So, original mind. And then, um, I just want to finish up by um, talking about uh, some other stuff that Jack writes about in the book. He, in his book, The Wise Heart, he has... Um, laid out 26 principles of Buddhist psychology. And I'm not going to go through all of them. I just wanted to go through a few of them. And one of them is uh, that I really like is that compassion is our deepest nature. It arises from our interconnection with all things. And that's, so, that's that, that there's the wisdom, but there's also the compassion. Because the more we practice mindfulness the more we stay present and really allow the quieting of the mind, there's parts of the brain that are activated that, that activate the empathetic pieces of the brain. I listened to a talk a while ago, a couple of years ago, by Dr. Um, Michael Yellowfeather, Yellowbird, um, who's a, a neuroscientist, and, uh, and he talked about this, and that there's this sense of connection that develops when we quiet the mind. And that's so important, and that, that's where compassion is. So compassion is our deepest nature when the mind is at rest, and it arises from our interconnection with all things. So important. So important. That's an aspect of Buddhism, this interconnectedness that Thich Nhat Hanh was so... Um, eloquent about his, he had an order of interbeing, just seeing the connection in everything, you know. And then there's also the invitation to recognize these mental states that fill our consciousness and to shift from unhealthy states to healthy ones. The, the word that's often used is wholesome. I like the word beneficial from things that are not beneficial to things that are beneficial, you know. And to recognize that our ideas of self um, can be, we can let go of these ideas of self. And the more we let go of these ideas of self, of who I am, these little boxes that we create for ourselves and try and stuff ourselves into, that's so painful. 
If you, the more you can let go of those, the freer and happier we'll be. And, and mindful attention to any experience is liberating. Mindfulness brings perspective, balance, and freedom. So my, if nothing else, mindfulness. Mindfulness is key, absolutely key. So then mindfulness cultivates wisdom, which is knowing what's present without being lost in it, knowing the thoughts, knowing the feelings, but not being sucked, sucked away by them. I can know there's anger. I can feel it sitting in my chest, but I'm not subsumed by it because I have a clarity, I have a, an awareness that it's there. When I'm not paying attention, it takes over. And I can yell, I can say things that I really don't want to say, and I can do things I don't really want to do. So paying attention is so, so, um, so important. And along with that, um, thoughts are often one-sided and untrue. And so learn to be mindful of thoughts instead of being lost in them. I like this. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is not. It's the pain, you know, when the Buddha talked about birth, death, um, illness, being, you know, separated from people we love, that's the human condition. That's going to happen. But suffering and adding the second arrow and the third arrow and the fourth arrow, that's, a, that's something we do ourselves. And one thing that I think is incredibly important, um, and this is also, again, a universal idea in Buddhism, is that virtue and integrity are necessary for genuine happiness. Guard your integrity with care. The precepts, and the, the part of the, um, you know, the second section of the Eightfold Path, sila, ethical behavior, it's so important that we have that ethical behavior, that we live with integrity in a way that doesn't cause harm to ourselves or others. It's so important. Um, and when we, ha we live with integrity, there's a mind that's at ease because we're not full of remorse or guilt or shame or all those other things that come along with it. There's this clarity. We take responsibility for our actions and we move forward in the world um, with clear sight and wise intention. And then finally he says, a peaceful heart gives birth to love. When love meets suffering, it turns to compassion. When love meets happiness, it turns to joy. That's equanimity. That's that last piece of the seven factors of awakening. We have this equanimous nature that we have a heart of love. It's peaceful because there's clarity and wisdom. We see what's going on. And when there's suffering, we greet it with compassion. When there's joy, we meet it. When there's happiness, we meet it with joy. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the promise of this practice. I've had a taste of that in my life. I'm not there by any shape or a stretch of the imagination, I still ha I'm not dead, so I still have a ways to go. I'm not done. Um, but I've, the, my life has been transformed by these teachings, and I understand from a visceral and experiential place what this means, even if it's only for a moment or five minutes. And, there's, and I, I'm sure, because I know you've all been practicing for a while, that you have those experiences in your life that um, have shown you there is freedom um, in this practice. So thank you, my friends, for listening. I hope this 
has been of some benefit. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.